We come to our catechism reading tonight, which again is the Heidelberg Catechism, Lord's Day 7, question and answer 20 through 23. And as a reminder, we will uh, we'll sing the Apostles' Creed after question 23 is asked. Let's read this responsively. Question 20. Are all people then saved through Christ just as they were lost through Adam? No. Only those are saved who, through true faith, are grafted into Christ and accept all his benefits. What is true faith? True faith is not only a sure knowledge by which I hold as true all that God has revealed to us in his word. It is also a wholehearted trust which the Holy Spirit works in me by the gospel. That God has freely granted, not only to others, but to me also, forgiveness of sins, eternal righteousness, and salvation. These gifts are purely of grace, only because of Christ's merit. What then must a Christian believe? All that is promised us in the gospel, a summary of which is taught us, in the articles of our Catholic and undoubted Christian faith. And question 23, what are these articles? And the answer, of course, is the Apostles' Creed. Let's sing all four stanzas together.
go to the Lord and ask for the help of the Holy Spirit. Almighty and everlasting God, our Heavenly Father, we acknowledge that we are sinners conceived and born in sin and unable of ourselves to do any good. But we do repent of our sins and seek your grace to help us in our remaining weaknesses. Through the teaching of your word, which we confess with the church throughout the ages, satisfy our hunger and quench our thirst with your refreshing truth, that we with all our hearts may love and serve you with our Lord Jesus Christ and the Holy Spirit, the one and only true God who lives and reigns forever. Amen. Well, pop culture is more than happy to tell us that we ought to believe. We should have faith. Believe in yourself is a, a tried and true slogan. You can find that anywhere. I don't know where that originates, but you can find that anywhere. Any kind of pop culture, bumper stickers and so on. Don't Stop Believing is a famous song lyric. There's my favorite from a movie I saw once where a, uh, a man was holding his dying friend. And he's, he's very upset because his friend is dying. And his dying friend looks up at him and says, it doesn't matter what you believe in, just have faith. See, just having faith means you can be vaguely spiritual. It doesn't matter what your faith is in, according to the, uh, the ideas and the understanding of this world. Well, in our morning sermon, we learned some things about faith from Mark chapter 9. But tonight, the teaching of the catechism guides us to a very particular question that we want to spend our time on. And that question is, what is true faith? What is it? This is one of those Christian virtues, one of those terms in Scripture and in the Christian life that we, we use, and sometimes we don't have a lot of clarity about it. What is true faith? Our series from the Catechism so far this year has taught us a few things that are very critical for us to understand. We have gathered that when Adam sinned, he did so as our representative. So as goes the head, so goes the members of the body. As our representative, what he has done has consequences for us. And so his guilt has passed to all of us. That's why we say that we are conceived of and born in sin. But Christ has come as the last Adam. As we just saw in Romans chapter 5. Adam was a type of the one who was to come our Lord Jesus Christ. Adam's sin has led to death, but Christ's redemptive work leads to eternal life. Both have consequences for those who are in a relationship to them. All are in relationship to Adam, and so all are guilty through Adam, and some have a relationship to Christ, and so receive as a consequence what Christ has done. That's what we find, and that's the, the argument of a substantial section of Romans chapter 5, contrasting and comparing these two Adams, the first and the last. And question 20 helps us to see that the effect, the, the consequence of Christ's work is not the same as the effect, the consequence of Adam's work. Question 20 asks, are all people then saved through Christ just as they were lost through Adam? 
And the answer is no. No, in order to receive what Christ has done, you must have true faith. Only those are saved who through true faith are grafted into Christ, which is the, the language of, uh, of, of trees and plants. When a, a branch is taken off and a new kind of branch is grafted on, it is in that manner through true faith that you accept all of the benefits of Jesus Christ. We must have true faith. And so the question remains, what is it? What is true faith? If it is so important, we have to know what we're talking about. And there are three key elements to it. Knowledge, agreement, and trust. Knowledge, agreement, and trust. And tonight, very simply, I want us to see these three elements, not only confessed in the catechism, which is where where we find them pretty clearly, But even more clearly, I want us to see them in Scripture. So first, that first element of true faith. Knowledge. Knowledge. Question and answer 21 in the Catechism is telling us exactly what true faith is. It's giving us this succinct answer and definition. And here's the first element. It says, true faith is a sure knowledge. True faith is a sure knowledge. Salvation through Christ means you have to know something about Christ. You have to know something about Him. God has acted in history through His Son, Jesus Christ. And you've got to know that. I think there's some, uh, some clarity to this when we compare how we ought to know these things in, in the New Covenant as opposed to what we find in the Old Testament. For instance... Uh, The knowledge of what God has done in history was particularly focused in the Old Testament on the Exodus, on saving the people of God out of Egypt. And so we hear with amazing frequency throughout the Old Testament things like this, like we find in Rahab in Joshua chapter 2. She's speaking with two Israelites and she says, We have heard how the Lord dried up the water of the Red Sea before you when you came out of Egypt. The news had been passed on. Somebody, somehow, in God's providence, had brought this news of deliverance, something she had to know, Rahab had to know, and she knew it. She had knowledge. And this is still the case for us today. We have to know what God has done in Jesus Christ. Now, true faith isn't made up only of knowledge. That's not the only element. Um... In other words, you can, you can know these things about Jesus Christ and still not have true faith. For instance, in the letter of James, chapter 2, verse 19, he says something very interesting. He says, even the demons believe. Even the demons believe. Um, in particular, what he's saying is that they believe that God is one. It's a, kind of, it's a particular doctrine about God. The demons believe that, James says. Do they rest in, in, that, in that knowledge? No, they shudder, he says. Even the demons believe and they shudder. So the enemies of Christ have knowledge about him, but it is not a saving knowledge. It is not a trusting knowledge. And so it's not true faith. 
Instead, what we're looking for is what we find, for instance, in John chapter 17. This is Jesus' high priestly prayer on the night before his crucifixion. And he says, This is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. Eternal life can only be gotten when there is knowledge involved. The knowledge that God has sent His Son, Jesus Christ, to save sinners. Now, the opposite of knowledge, of course, is is ignorance. And so, it ought to be our joy as the people of God to grow more and more in the knowledge of Jesus Christ. To know more about Him, to search the Scriptures, to find out what is He like What is the depth of what he's done for us? That's why we spend so much time reading and explaining the scriptures in our services. Is that we may know Christ and the power of his resurrection and share in his sufferings with him that we might attain to the resurrection of the dead. We have to know Christ. That's the first element of true faith. So you you have to have knowledge in order to have true faith. The second element of true faith, which receives Christ and all his benefits, is agreement. Agreement. If you were to read the old uh, theologies on this, they would speak of it as assent. You know, you give your assent to something, it means you agree with it. Question and answer 21 in the Catechism continues on. It says, true faith is a sure knowledge by which I hold as true all that God has revealed to us in his word. In other words, it's not, it isn't enough to know kind of bare facts about God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. It's not enough to know the, uh, the basic contours of the gospel, which is why many, um, many apostate churches still recite the Apostles' Creed and yet don't have true faith. You can kind of agree that these things are true. Um, and, and you can, you can um, have knowledge about them, uh, rather. But you have to have an assent to them. You have to agree. This isn't, this isn't a fable. We're not speaking about mythology in the way that, we're spe- that we would speak about Greek mythology or Roman mythology. But that these things are, um, are true. They really happened. And they happened as they've been reported. True faith, if we were to boil this down, this, uh, this point about agreement, true faith means that you agree that Scripture's testimony is true. We see this very helpfully in the writings of the Apostle John. For instance, in his Gospel, chapter 3, verse 33, he says, Whoever receives the testimony of Christ sets his seal to this, that God is true. That God is true. Meaning, when you, see, when, when you see and hear in Scripture what Jesus says about himself and what Jesus says about God the Father, then you agree that it is true. That God has not told a lie. Or in the New Testament letter of 1 John, chapter 5, verse 10, we read, Whoever believes, that's faith, whoever believes in the Son of God has the testimony about him in himself. Whoever does not believe God has made him a liar 
because he's not believed in the testimony that God has borne concerning his son. So you must know and you must agree that it is true. Otherwise, you are imputing to God deceit as though he is telling us lies. Now, the opposite of this, of of this agreement, of course, is kinds of disagreements. To disagree. Um, Which would be to come to the testimony about Jesus and act as though you are a purely objective observer and say, I don't agree. I do not agree with this. Um, Now, most people don't say it like that. It it comes in various forms. For instance, it it could come uh, in the form of just not agreeing that these things took place at all. As uh, still some, even today, claim that Jesus didn't exist, that he was not a historical figure. Which is bonkers, uh, by the way, to believe that. That's that's, uh, absurdity and insanity. Uh, or it could be that you, maybe you agree he existed, he's this historical figure, but you don't think that his claims and his teachings and his miracles are true. There are plenty of people who come to disagree with the testimony of God in that way. Or maybe more common, and I think what a lot of true believers struggle with, is that the, the experiences of life begin to rub up and grind up against the, uh, the teaching of Scripture. And you feel as though what you confess about the Bible is not bearing itself out to be true in life. You're going through something difficult and you think, well, the Bible tells me God is love. If that's true, how can this difficulty be true? And so what can begin to rise in our hearts is a kind of disagreement with God's Word. Well, brothers and sisters, don't Try not to be alarmed when those kinds of things happen in your heart. Don't, don't, uh, don't obsess about that kind of thing. Bring it to the Lord. Submit it to the Lord. And work through it with others. There, there are many wonderful resources and there are many wonderful conversations to be had with other brothers and sisters in Christ to help you through such struggles. And Scripture and Christ himself can handle the very big and important questions of life. True faith, that true faith which accepts Christ and his benefits, it includes agreement. Okay? A sure knowledge that you hold to be true. Lastly this evening, the third element of true faith is trust. Again, back to question and answer 21, as we're putting this all together. We read, true faith is not only a sure knowledge by which I hold is true, all that God has revealed to us in his word, it is also a wholehearted trust. We must know the testimony of God's word, we must agree that it is true and that God is not lying, and then the, the absolute key element, we must trust it with our whole heart. And only when trust is added to this can it be called true faith. It's a kind of faith to have knowledge and agreement. It's a kind of faith, but it's not true faith. You must come and and trust wholeheartedly. What actually is this act of faith? What are we speaking about here? 
The Bible is filled with helpful descriptions and images of it. Our reading from Proverbs chapter 3, verse 5 is one of the clearest examples because it holds a couple of phrases in parallel to each other. Okay, so it says, Trust in the Lord with all your heart and do not lean on your own understanding. What's being held together there is trust and leaning. Leaning. Trust is when your heart leans upon God. That's wholehearted trust. Does it sound like your works can be involved with that action? They, they can't, you know, works are just a different kind of thing than faith. Leaning is a kind of passive action. It is true, you're doing something, but you're leaning. You're leaning. Psalm 62. I'm going to give us several, uh, several uh, pictures of, of wholehearted trust here from Scripture. Psalm 62, verses 7 through 8. The psalmist says, On God rests my salvation and my glory. My mighty rock, my refuge is God. Trust in him at all times, O people. As the psalmist is telling the people of God to trust in the Lord... He is using the image of resting upon the Lord. Why? Because he's a rock. You're going to pick up the rock and do something with it? No, you're going to lean on it. You're going to rest upon it. John 3, 31 through 36, another one of our readings tonight. It describes the act of faith as receiving the testimony of Jesus. Receiving him. And when that testimony is received, condemnation goes away and forgiveness and salvation come. Ephesians chapter 3, verse 12, faith is described as confidence, confidence by which we draw near to God. Just listen to these wonderful pictures. Faith is this trust which leans and it rests and it receives And it is confident. It is, you know, good works are, we are 100% pro good works. But they are not a part of the act of faith. True faith stands or falls on this primary action, resting in the finished work of Jesus Christ. He has done the work on your behalf. All you can do is receive it with open hands. Leaning on him for salvation, receiving him as Savior, being sure and confident that he alone gives you access to God. And the opposite of this trust, of course, is doubt. And I bring this up because in our day, doubt is spoken of like it's a virtue. But it's not a virtue. Doubt is not a virtue. That would only be true. Doubt could only be a a virtue if... Faith didn't include knowledge. Doubt could only be a virtue if faith didn't include knowledge. Here's what I mean by this. Many people talk about, uh, about Christians just taking a blind leap. So it's good to have doubts and come with skepticism to everything. But that is a, that's a straw man argument. That's not what we believe at all. Faith includes knowledge. It includes knowledge. It's not blind at all. 
It is resting on what you know to be true. And when spiritual doubts come, as they always do, just as we do with disagreements, we bring them to the Lord in humility. We confess them as sins. We do that in our, one of our prayers of confession. Our hearts are dark and they're assailed by doubts. We confess those to be part of our sin nature. We offer them to the Lord. We ask for forgiveness and we ask him to bolster our faith. You are not saved by a perfect faith. You are saved by a true faith, even though it is riddled with doubts. Because your faith is not properly the thing that saves you. Christ is who saves you. And even a weak faith clings to him and leans on him. So pray like the psalmists who lay all their grievances and their doubts uh, uh, before the feet of of God. And pray like we saw this morning. Pray like the father of Mark chapter 9. I believe, but help my unbelief. That's what it looks like to faithfully deal with your doubts in the Christian life. Whatever the world tries to tell you, brothers and sisters, it's not enough just to believe. We have to have an object of our faith, and that object is the Savior, Jesus Christ, knowing him, agreeing that his testimony is true, and receiving him and all his benefits with wholehearted trust. Amen. Let us pray. Gracious and merciful Father, help us to inwardly digest this food that you have given to us. Help us to pass along the doctrines of the faith to our covenant children and your knowledge and fear until we all have reached complete maturity. All of this we ask in the name of Christ Jesus, our Lord. Amen.